Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is The Educated Homebuyer with Jeb Smith and Josh Lewis. Hey guys, welcome back to another week of The Educated Homebuyer live answering your mortgage and real estate questions right here as we give you an update on what's happening in the economy. Josh, welcome back to another another lovely week. We actually have sunshine here in Orange County. Great sunshine. Is, this week has been much better than last week. Which is, a, which is a, you know, more of what I signed up for. We're still not at the right climate, but... It's manageable, more manageable. Go out to the desert on the weekends, Jeb. It's very warm and comfortable. That sounds nice. That sounds really nice. But with kids' sports and life somewhat limited in uh, activities at the moment. But you guys aren't here for that. You are here to get your questions answered. And that's exactly what we're going to do, as we do every single week. So first off, I want to say thank you again for those who subscribe to the channel, those who support the channel. Um, almost at 100,000 subs. Uh, thought I would be there by this week uh, at the rate that I was growing. A little bit short. I uh, still got about a, about 150 or so uh, to get to 100,000. So it'll probably happen tomorrow or by Friday. But either way, the number's not important. I'm just grateful to be here and have the opportunity to chat and educate and have a good time while in the process. But every single week, we like to start with what's going on in the housing market, what's going on with uh, you know um, the market, with the economy, just to kind of keep you guys moving along so that you can make informed informed decisions and become more educated homebuyers. So every single week, we like to start with inventory. Inventory is what drives our market, right? It is supply and demand. This, in this case, is the supply. And we're seeing, unfortunately, not supply not really growing on a, on a, on a nationwide level. Um, we saw inventory come down a little bit from last week, which is essentially what we saw last year. We're still above those numbers, but we're not growing at any meaningful pace, which unfortunately isn't likely to change as interest rates have now gone back up above 7%. So we're probably going to experience a lot of what we saw towards the end of last year. But hopefully as the year goes on, inflation hopefully continues to moderate. We get uh, better inventory numbers. But here in Orange County, sitting at 1,868 homes, Huntington Beach, 151. So numbers are eh, maybe a little bit higher than last week, but more or less the same, which takes us into new listings. So we always like to look at new listings because new listings gives us a sign of where the market is headed. So uh, new listings this week jumped, uh, what, we're 14% more than we were this time last year. But as you'll see here in the numbers a moment ago, even though we're getting these new listings, inventory isn't really growing. And that's because a lot of this is being met with buyer demand. So this year, 51,875 new listings. Same week last year, 44,533. And then 2022, 45,000. So more new listings coming on the market, which is what we want to see. Ideally, we see this number continue to increase, continue to grow, which will in theory, add additional inventory, but a lot of it has to do with buyer demand. So we've seen median home price tick up a little bit, sitting at 425. Uh, median price of new listings coming on the market sitting around 399, which is essentially a kind of a, a sideways move week over week. So not a lot of change on that front. And this just shows new listings versus immediate sales. Um, unfortunately, I don't have uh, the ability to read this chart because of how I'm reading it at the moment. So we're just going to skip over this uh, just because of that's where, you know, I, I can't see the numbers are so small on the screen that I'm looking at. Uh, this goes contracts pending. So you can see this year compared to last year, um, we're a little bit above uh, 2024 than we were in 2023. And you have to understand contracts pending is uh, one of those indicators that, uh, you know, when a, when a property goes under contract, it's based off where rates were at that time. So this this data that you're seeing here is from last week. That's before rates kind of shot up that that last week. So my guess is when you see the data from next week, you might see pending sales actually come down a little bit because less people next week are probably going to be going into contract. Well, this week, if you will, just because 
of this transition in interest rates, but hard to say, um, you know, buyers and, 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 you know, depending on where you are in the process and, and where rates are may impact you. It may not, you may just decide to, uh, to still move forward. So that inventory change that we talked about went from 497 to 494. Um, those are thousands. So 497,000 down to 494,000. Same week last year, we went from 457 to 444,000. So I've mentioned this uh, in previous weeks, but typically inventory starts to grow from the beginning of the year. We see that number start to go up. Uh, you don't normally see inventory come on the market at the beginning of the year and start to see numbers less and less each week. That's what we saw last year, which wasn't normal. We want to see those numbers grow because more inventory means more opportunities. Uh, just it gives buyers more options. You know, a lot of you are probably sitting on the sidelines. I have buyers that can't find the right home just because it's not out there. It's not on the market. And we're, you know, just kind of sitting here. And when something does come on the market, we write an offer. There's multiple because, again, everybody's vying over the same property. Uh, price drop sitting at 30% versus 32%. Last year, this is a pretty normal um, I didn't put in the other chart. It didn't come out this week in the, in the data, but around 30% of price drops is normal in any normal market. So even in a hot, hot market, about 30% of the homes on the market have some sort of price decrease. Um, 2022 was somewhat of an exception because of the craziness in the market, uh, at that time, but in a normal market prior to the pandemic, about 30% per year were some sort of price drops. Now, Josh suggested that we start taking some of the data that we have and putting it in here to show you different markets. Cause we get a lot of questions on different markets across the U S now what happens is this comes from calculated risk. Uh, it's, it's a sub stack. You can subscribe, you can get the info, but these are a couple charts that come out of some of the articles here. And he does two to three updates a month on different markets across the U S. So not all markets are in here. And not all markets has he tracked since back in the day. And you'll kind of notice that in the numbers. But what I like to look at is year over year change. And then I like to look at it. Where is it? Where was it relative to 2019? Because that's more important, in my opinion, because that was a more normal market. So this is a take. This is a look at active inventory. Well, you can see most markets are down versus 2019 until you look at, say, Jacksonville. Jacksonville year over year active inventory is up almost 40 percent. And up nearly 12 and a half percent from 2019. So if I looked at that, I would think Jacksonville is a more soft market compared to something like Albuquerque or San Diego, where these markets are not only down year over year, but they're down substantially from 2019. So that's, you know, kind of something to pay attention to here. I'll leave that up on the screen just for a moment so you can take a look at if you have a market there. But the next thing we're going to look at is new listings. So new listings, similar markets. Um, again, not all of them transfer over because of how he tracks some of this information. But again, new listings is something we follow because we want to pay attention to year over year increases and where we were versus 2019. So year over year, most markets are seeing an increase in inventory versus last year. But with that, most markets are still down pretty big numbers versus 2019. Now, uh, if we look at Georgia, Georgia is up. Uh, well, not Georgia, I'm sorry. Uh, Grand Rapids, Grand Rapids is up 17.7% year over year and up 7.6% from 2019. So I look at that and people would ask, well, what do you think about Grand Rapids? Well, if I'm looking at those numbers. I think maybe there's a better opportunity to be a buyer in that market than say a seller. If you're comparing it to a market like uh, on this one, Josh, I mean, what's one? Um, San Diego or... Portland or, you know, somewhere in the Northwest, whatever he's claiming those markets to be. But again, just good data. Hopefully and just a, just yep. a comment on this one, Jeb, you said Georgia, like he does mix in some of this data is available on a state level, yep. like Georgia, yeah. he has one in here, Northwest, it's a region. So remember the whole reason why we wanted to throw this stuff in here is we tell you guys every week, who cares what the national numbers are? Your market could be super hot relative to that, super cold relative to that. So I just wanted to give some context, give you guys the ability to jump in and see some of these numbers where people ask every week, Hey Jeb, what's happening in Northeast Ohio? I do not know, but this is tracked and we have a way here to, to kind of show you guys what it matches up to relative to the national numbers that we go through.
All right, good stuff. Uh, next one's closed sales. So closed sales, who really cares about closed sales for most people, and unless they're one of the people that are, are closing. But again, it just shows you most of these markets are going to be down year over year and uh, versus 2019 because, again, less transactions happening because of where rates are, where affordability is, all of that good stuff. So if you like that sort of thing, let us know in the comments. We can continue to add these charts in every single week. He does these reports, he updates markets. So if you find it valuable, let us know in the description and we'll continue to add them. So this again is a look back to 2019 versus 2023 when it comes to inventory. So pretty, not that surprising to me, Josh, but somewhat surprising when you look at, you know, Texas and some of these bigger states that uh, have done very, very well. Yeah, you look all of the areas that have more inventory were the areas that appreciated the most. It kind of is surprising to me, Jeb, we do know that some parts of the Northeast Rust Belt areas are the most affordable. So they have um, the the biggest change in inventory as people have shifted from, hey, Sunbelt kind of got priced out. Some people stayed home in Pennsylvania or Ohio and pushed those prices up. But just wanted to give you some context and, and that kind of transitions into the next one really nicely. So um, this one is a little bit of a gut punch. We talk about cheaper to rent, cheaper to own. If we go back to 2020, this chart, all those dark gray areas shows where it was cheaper to buy. Um, uh, where we are here in Southern California, always paid a premium to own versus rent. But if you look now, that's pretty much all of the country. There is some form of, of red or pink. Um, so again, we did that uh, interview on the podcast with Barry Habib. He did a really good job explaining why, yes, short run rent is better, long run, and then that depends on how red your area is, but longer term, especially if rates drop and, and buyers are able to refinance, that transitions over time. Generally within five to 10 years, you're significantly better off owning, but just thought we'd throw that in there. Wanted to point this out, uh, Jeb, the, the next one there just shows the home ownership rate. So this goes all the way back to 1965. The low on that chart is oh, about, yes, the low oh. on the chart is, uh, is about 63%. It ran up to almost 66, back down in the early nineties to about 64%. Post, uh, you know, January 15, it got as low as, as 63%. But we talk about this, the high was 69% uh, back in I January of 05. And that was due to bad government policies. The government decided that homeownership is good, so more homeownership must be better. We want to see that number somewhere between 63 and 66%. So is it reasonable to think that as affordability drops that we could see that homeownership rate dwindle? Yes, but we're probably going to be right about where we are right now. Um, we had the big one, Jeb, this week, consumer price index. So oh, last oh, week- Oh boy, did we. Yeah, last week Boy, it was we got punched we. by a crazy uh, non-farms payrolls, which the non-farm payrolls has massive adjustments. The January is prone to wild, crazy numbers. There's a little bit of that in CPI, but not as much. But I wanted to show a couple slides for just to put that into context. You can still see the downtrend. You can still see that it went down. It went down. It just didn't go down as much as what everyone had wanted. Also wanted to point out this one. The light blue line there is what was forecast. So the fact that just this month, light blue was right below the dark blue, that's what the market didn't like. They were forecasting it to be lower. It came out a, a little bit higher. But in context, those, those numbers have been pretty accurate for the better part of uh, 18 months. The number I like to show here, Jeb, Truflation, why do we show this? Because the biggest lag effect in the CPI data is the shelter. It's still picking up shelter from 12 months ago, and we're going to see that all of the current measures are showing the shelter cost, which is the largest component of CPI, has come down a ton. So these guys use a different methodology as a 97% correlation to CPI, and they are half, less than half of what is showing up in CPI. So this is the Fed's index that they look at. Um, from the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland showing here that we are negative on new tenant uh, rents. And that's important because what happens is once you're renting a house or you're renting an apartment, that landlord knows they have some leverage. It, it takes time, effort, energy, and money to move. So when we want to look, we want to look at new leases for people coming in and those are, are flat to down. And that will over the next six to 12 months be trickling into that data. To kind of show you that in context, if we take shelter, which shelter is the biggest component, it is the most lagged, we're at 1.5%. That's not to say that we can do that and say, hey, take shelter out of it, the most important or most expensive component of your household expenses. But it shows that we are well below 2% when that catches up. Um, but it won't catch up. I mean, that's that's with it removed entirely. 
where we get where we should expect next year, we should be somewhere in the 2% range. This chart here just Jeb shows sequential core inflation for countries that experience a large and unwanted inflation surge. And it shows that on average, all of the countries around the world that spiked during COVID are back right around 2% on a three month annualized basis. This, Jeb, we usually show the chart showing each meeting, what this is going to look like. This just breaks it down pretty simply. As of today, for March and May, we have uh, the majority uh, vote there, 60%, 89% chance, and then 60% chance that we're not going to see a cut. We are at 80% for June, so we'll see. We'll see how this plays out. We got a lot of data between now and June, just the way everything shakes out, and only two meetings um, between now and May 1, or the, the second half of May, not a lot of data between those two. So it may mean that we don't get those cuts, because the data that's likely to come as those shelter costs recede is going to come late to the game. Wanted to throw this in here, Jeb. We hear this all the time. People say, yeah, everyone's talking about that. That uh, inverted yield curve tells us that there's going to be a recession and there was no recession. So the highlighted line there says the average lag is six to 24 months. We're now at 17 months. So we're at the far end of that. Median, I believe, is 15. So we're two months past the midpoint of when we would expect that. Um, I think people who think we are out of risk for uh, a recession are, are going to be disappointed. So throw this in here. What happens when we hit a recession? Throw that giant uh, blue bar on the right. That was COVID. COVID's a weird thing. But anywhere from a tiny decrease, 0.1, 0 0.2% uh, to GDP, all the way up to about 3%. So we're not likely to get one of these crazy GFC COVID uh, reductions. It's likely to be a mild recession and we may avoid it, but we are going to get a dip to, to growth. Um, this here, Jeff, thought this was, was really important. We talk a lot going through the pandemic when rates were really low, basically told people your optimal move is to not pay points unless you say, hey, this is my forever home. I'm never going to move. A point can get you a quarter percent lower. A couple points can get you a half percent lower, but you have a break even about six or seven years. Mm -hmm. Well, as, as rates have gone up, the way lenders stack their rate sheet, less well-qualified borrowers, lower FICOs, higher LTVs don't have the choice. So you can see here about mid-2022, uh, we saw a big spike. And now most people went from point. 0.2 points up to about 0.7. So the reality is most people are, are paying zero. And then we have a lot of people that are paying one, one and a half, two points. And that's just where the market is. Um, this one here, it was it was too detailed. It doesn't even show up well. But this shows state by state. This kind of surprised me, Jeb. The California shows up in the middle there of this where maybe 50% of borrowers are paying points. The darker states, um, Oregon, Washington, people paying more points. So I still am of the belief that zero points is the right move. But oftentimes people don't have the choice. They need a rate to be able to qualify. Um, and or like we said, they, they are doing a non-owner occupied deal that has a lot of loan level price adjustments and we just can't cover those. So this, Jeb, we, we always cover the 10-year treasury here um, due to the last two weeks of non-farms payroll, CPI. It's definitely spiked. Those bars there, you can see we're trying to get back under a 38% Fibonacci retracement. But that is basically the move from December all are from October down through December. We gave up about 38% of it is where we sit right now of that total move. So it's important uh, that we don't see much more give back. And you ran the chart. We didn't throw it in here, Jeb, but you ran the chart. You thought uh, 434 was a, a likely move before we saw improvement. Well, I saw, I, I called 422. Uh, 422 okay. was my number. It went to 422 and then broke right above it. Um, but then, I mean, it was, it was somewhere around that number. So it was, it was pretty, pretty close. Yeah. So it's likely that we've seen the worst, but we're not out of the woods. The, the data coming here is going to tell us that. So what does that mean for you if you're out there in the market? Optimal Blue is reporting 6.833 uh, on a 30-year fixed conforming conventional and a mortgage news daily is at 7.09. So somewhere right in that 7% range. We were hoping that that stuff was in the rear view mirror. It apparently is not. FHA Optimal Blue is reporting 6.65 and 6.55 for mortgage news daily. So that's what you're looking at there. Uh, so there's housing and there's rates. Awesome. Josh, put us back to our, there we go. So guys, um, if you find any value in that information that we just did there, do me a favor, hit that thumbs up. Um, if you aren't subscribed to the channel, now would be a really good time to become part of the community um, and help me hit 100,000 subs. I'm so very close. And honestly, my kids are ecstatic. Like they're checking the numbers constantly because they're they're, they're getting play buttons because they that's 
what they want in their room, I guess. They're going to take them from me. So um, anyway, guys, it would be very, I'm very grateful. We do this every single week. We're here. We used to be two hours. Now we're an hour. Um, but it's taking time out of our day to educate and guide you guys through the process. And the other thing I want to mention is if you're not checking out the Educated Home Buyer channel on YouTube, go do that. Listen to the podcast. A lot of positive feedback coming from you that are listening and watching. And we are very grateful for that. If you just listen to that on audio, you're wondering, hey, what the hell were they talking about slide wise? Like I didn't see any of those charts. I'll link to it in the description below. You'll have that so you can go back and watch it. And lastly, if you need to get in touch with Josh or myself, uh, anywhere in the country, an agent, a mortgage professional, you can use that link below to do it. So Josh, let's do this. Let's back it up and uh, start with some questions. Um, we've got... Is your is your monitor able to show yeah, them to you? Yeah, 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 yeah. So Kenneth, um, Kenneth asking, is it me or did mortgage rates go from six and a half to seven? No, it's it's not just you. Um, it was it was it happened between basically two different reports. It happened between non-farm payrolls coming in, two hundred plus thousand more jobs than than um, were expected, which is essentially the same thing we saw last January. Same exact thing because some recalculations done, but nevertheless, the number came in as it, it, what it did. Um, and then this time CPI. Now part of CPI, there was some rounding because again, that you, you kind of look like a realtor or mortgage professional in your picture. But um, anytime I see a suit, I, I just assume that. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we because of some rounding and how the numbers came in, the number actually popped up a little bit more than expected, which made it look a little bit worse on paper than 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 it was, but nevertheless, it came in higher, and we're paying the price for that at the moment. So, um, some people believe that this is the spike that it's going to continue to go down from here. I do think the same thing, but uh, if I've learned anything, it is to expect the unexpected, and um, we're continuing to see that at the moment. Jeb, let so. let's follow along. Here's another question. Praxia, yeah. regular uh, viewer here, says, "I know you guys have been stressing inflation falling off and rates trending down meaningfully by year end." And I agreed. Agreed sounds like past tense, Jeb. <laughs> yeah, we're seeing analysts predicting a new cycle of sustained high rates too. Um, nothing has changed my opinion. I don't want to speak for Jeb, but on that note, I told Jeb he and I were um, sending some chat messages last night, and I said you would appreciate this. Two people that I really enjoy following their commentary and the data that they follow: Danielle DiMartino Booth. You can get a lot of her stuff on YouTube. Peter Bookbar also on Substack, thirty dollars a month. You can get all his info. So Danielle DiMartino Booth goes through all the info, including the CPI data, and she's like, "We are going to see a significant downward move in the ten year." in the in the near future i flip over i go through i read through book bar stuff he goes through all the same data from the same day and he goes this is yet again another reason why i say we are going to revisit five percent on the 10 year before anything. those are two really smart people i think i'm pretty smart i think i'm on top of this i tend to agree with daniel DiMartino booth but i also know that peter book bar knows a lot more about economics than i do and following the economy so um has anything changed my opinion no, but are there smart people out there that are on the other side of it? Yeah, there are. They're in the minority right now, um, but they're they're not zero. They're not even, you know, it's probably what would you say six, 60, 40, 65, 35, Jeb? Yeah, something like that. Probably right. Yeah. All right. Uh let's transition here a little bit. Uh big big G. Big G. I see when you say big G, I have a picture in my head of somebody I would think of as big G since there's no photo there. So I feel like you either need to put a photo in there. Or give us a description. Are you are like what are we looking at here? Uh, Jeb, like, don't be mad because you're a, you're a lowercase G and he's a big G. I mean, maybe like maybe you know that's maybe he's got a, a son and they're little G and he's just big G. Uh, but anyway, um, and I said he it could be a she. Who knows? Uh, but anyway, when will inventory improve? Is the question. And there's another question along the same lines, basically asking, will will oh you're you're asking the same question. You will low inventory cause builders to build more homes? So to answer the second part first, I believe yes. Uh, I think at the moment, 25. I, I saw the chart this past week. I don't remember the exact number, but it's more than 25 percent of the current inventory that's on the market nationwide is new construction, um, which is a very very big number. Um, in fact, last year. During at one point in the year, it made up almost one third of the inventory because there's just so little existing inventory on the market that the, because there were so many new homes on the market, it was making up a big portion of it. And that's why new homes were selling at such a rapid rate, because th there was just less properties out there to choose from. It was easy to go deal with builders, plus they could buy down rates, all of that stuff. 
So your question is, when will inventory improve? It's the question that I've honestly been asking myself for the better part of a year, year and a half. And, and the reason for that is because there's two ways to look at inventory. A seller putting their home on the market is inventory increasing, right? So if, if for example, rates go lower, let's say in the mid 5% range, somewhere in that ballpark, you're going to have more inventory come to the market. But is that real inventory coming to the market? And you're probably listening going, well, what does that actually mean? What are you asking? Well, if a home comes to the market, but that same person putting their home on the market is a buyer because they're selling and they're buying, are you really adding any inventory? And, and the easy answer is no. Um, but what I will say is typically when people put their homes on the market and buy another, they're usually going, they're changing price ranges, right? So they're maybe adding one to, you know, say the median home price range, and then they're buying something more expensive because of changes in family, changes in circumstance, changes in whatever. So there's there's a change there. So maybe they're putting one on in your price range, but they're taking one off in another price range, if that makes sense. But in order to see a meaningful change in the market as a whole, you need inventory to come on the market and not come off. Like you need like just inventory to build for an existing period of time to, to slow price growth, to in turn change it to a buyer's market or whatever. Now, some markets, as we saw earlier in the in the slides, like Jacksonville was one of those markets. I know agents in Jacksonville. I should I should actually talk to some of them and see that. Is it is it a problem where you guys are? Is it a soft market? Because what I see is, hey, if there's inventory increasing and it's staying on the market, it's improving, then that's something to 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 take a look at. But if it's coming on the market and immediately going under contract because of high buyer demand, low inventory overall, then it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a balance that it's very hard to figure out. And I don't write, I don't know the answer. I don't know what increases that inventory. So Josh, throw it your way. I know, I mean, we have these talks all the time. Um, but I would, know. I would focus more on the second part of that question. Will low inventory cause builders to build more homes? Possibly just remember, they're not concerned with affordability. They're not concerned with housing crisis. There are most, mostly publicly held companies searching to make a profit and increase the, the stock price. So what they're looking to do is, is there room for us to sell more homes without having to put downward pressure on our prices? That's what they're trying to balance. And with that, one of the big problems over the last 15, 20 years, what do we need more of? We need more of 13, 1400 square foot, three bedroom, two bath homes. Instead, we get 3,500 square foot homes that can sell at a much higher price per square foot to a much more well-heeled move up buyer. So I wouldn't look to buyers to solve builders to solve the problem for the reason that they're trying to maximize profits. If if they do alleviate some of the pressure by building more inventory, it's inadvertent. It's not intentional. That's not their that's not their outcome. But but also something to to note is that when builders are building homes in a lot of markets out there, they're not building them in the price ranges that we really need the homes. Like here, take Huntington Beach, for example, right? A lot of the developments are infill developments because a school that's been unused for an extended period of time or whatever has now the land's been sold. So there's a development company that purchased the land and they're building homes. Well, guess what? The, those homes are super small lots. They're maximizing the homes on those lots. So you're talking 3,000, 3,500 square feet, $2 million plus. The majority of people, now Orange County is different. Huntington Beach is different because, right, median incomes and all of those things are different. But that's not that's not helping the people in my market. The people in my market are looking for homes in the one, two to one, three to one, four range. A lot of those buyers. And that's not what the builders are building. So it's all relative. And I understand a lot of, you know, counties and states and cities and whatever are different. But you got to understand not only are, are they building things, what are they building? Does it does it really help with the need out there in the market. And a lot of buyers are sitting below that median home price. And that is the, the most competitive price range, just because there's more buyers, more potential buyers, more able buyers in that market. Uh, Josh, you got some good questions. Um, we had Big G come in and I think it's important. I, I like we, I like Big G's follow-up. It's important. Big G is a 61-year-old man, uh, owns a home in Palm Springs and Arlington, Virginia, wants to sell home in Arlington. I actually talked to an agent in Arlington today. 
um, because I'm referring another agent, uh, another buyer in there um, at, I forget, Fort, uh, I forget the, it, it, drawn a blank, but they're getting ro- relocated in July. So actually have a conversation with her today. Uh, anyway, um, and looking to buy a home in San Diego, not really big, 130 and 511. You're not big at all. If you're 130 and 511, I got you by like 70 pounds. So I'm I'm now Big G and you're Jeb. You're Big J. He's yeah, he's Big I, G. Yeah. In the G anyway. in the G section of the alphabet, he's big. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but no, thanks for listening. Thanks for the support, uh, the questions. All of this helps other people, um, which is what we're here for. So good stuff. Um, Josh, why don't you pick something there? I'm I'm working off a limited. This is a this is an interesting one, and I, and Coley, hopefully you're still here. Correct me if I'm not following along. I'm pissed. I have the money required to season my VA loan, but I literally cannot buy time. That is the time required to season my loan. My interest rate is seven and a quarter. I have 117 days left. You have to have 210 days from the first payment before your VA Earl eligible. Um, if I'm following along, I think that's what you're saying. But importantly, here I wouldn't be pissed. I wouldn't worry about it. Rates are lower. We showed the number, you know, government FHA VA rates are about six and a half percent, depending on a number of factors that that would vary according to you and your property. But believe pretty strongly, we're going to have an opportunity later in the year at a better number. We were at six and a quarter on the, the optimal blue mortgage market index just, you know, 10 days ago. So I wouldn't worry about it. Um, just keep making the payments, get through to the 210 day timeline, reach out to a trusted uh, mortgage advisor, and they should be able to help you take advantage of it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't stress over not having met the seasoning requirements just yet. All right. Um, Josh, we got a couple different questions from uh, willing. If you want to throw those up there and kind of go through them quickly and see if you can, um, absolutely let's let's go through the first one and this is the one we're going to give the most detail the other are pretty easy what does aggregate adjustment mean now itemization always has this and i don't know what it means how is it calculated so willing is actually in the mortgage business but for any of you who see a number an aggregate adjustment is always a negative number it's a credit in your favor i mean what in the world is that if you are going to have an impound account at closing, the lender has to collect taxes and insurance to make sure that when the renewals come due, that there is enough in the impound account. But they also have to do a look forward because by law, they're only allowed to have so much above in reserve in that account at any point. So they have to go over 12 months, you make 12 payments, how much is in that account and what are we paying out? And that aggregate adjustment is a refund of the amount that you would they would have too much in your impound account over the course of the year. So if you're not doing impounds, you're never going to see it. A lot of times your upfront loan officer doing numbers for you is not going to quote that. But when you get your actual disclosures, once you're under contract, the loan origination system that your lender is using will calculate that and show you that and it can reduce your cash to close. Um, Also here, do, do PMI and HOA get thrown in the escrow payment as well? The PMI will always go into that because the lender is going to collect it. It doesn't really go to the escrow. They collect it. They pay it out to the mortgage company every month. The HOA, they don't want to get involved and don't want to get in between that. They have to quote you that number and they have to count it in your debt to income ratio, but they're never going to collect it. You're going to pay the HOA directly yourself. The last one Willing had here, it's also a good one. If you have a borrower that applies for a mortgage on a home that has another property with an open HELOC with a zero balance, would you have to account for 5% of that limit in the debt to income ratio? So some sometimes, and historically, there were times when they made us do that. Right now, if you have that, it's no different than having a zero balance on a credit card. It's a revolving debt that you are able to borrow against, but if nothing is borrowed against it right now, we don't have to count that against your debt to income ratio. Now, if you're thinking, hey, I'm going to buy a house, I've got 200 on my, on my HELOC on the current property, I'm gonna borrow 100, if that's where we source the funds from, now we have to get your home equity line of credit agreement and calculate what that payment is going to be. Good stuff. Uh, so that that's 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 great. Um, I saw something come in and I wanted to click on it and I just lost it. Uh, but it was it was um, it was here we go. Dimitri. Uh, Dimitri is a longtime listener of the podcast. First time here for a live. So I guess they listen on Spotify or Apple. Appreciate that. Uh, appreciate the support. Thanks for uh, for actually coming here. And it uh, looks like uh, you have a question, so let's answer it. So the question is... Good, good question. Really what's good more question. important in a real estate agent? Credentials, experience, or personality? I'm looking to buy my first home and choosing between three agents. All 
are highly recommended by people I trust. I've interviewed them all, but the one with the most experience and credentials, I don't really click with. And the one with the least, I really do click with. Here's the deal. I think you have to go with the one that you feel comfortable with, the one that it, you feel like is is your people, right? Um, you know, like if I go to do anything, if I don't click with a person, I don't resonate with someone, it's really hard to do business with that person. Um, and you're going to find it hard to trust that person if you if you don't resonate with them. Um, I will say that, you know, not I, I'm not everybody's cup of tea and that's OK. Uh, there are other agents out there that operate differently that are less experienced, that do more business than I do. Um, so there's definitely enough business out there for everyone. But with that said, if you choose the less um, experienced agent, just, you know, understand that, you know, you might have to take the upper hand sometimes in negotiations and be willing to put put it out there if they're not willing to step up and and do what's necessary. So, but nobody starts as a professional, right? It takes time, takes guidance. Um, you know, find out maybe from the person that's le that's less experienced. Do they have a mentor, somebody that they can you know, run things by? Do they have somebody that they can bounce prices off of? And hey, like I really like you, but the lack of experience is somewhat concerning to me. You know, how do you typically like? How do you figure out what a home is worth? Ask the questions that we talk about all the time. And get the get the confidence in them that they, they're the right person. And maybe that either helps secure that deal or says it's not the right person. So again, the person with the experience and 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 all of that, the older person isn't always the the right fit. Just you got to do what, what your gut tells you to do. And, and it sounds to me, based on what I'm reading here, that the less experienced person is is maybe the better fit. So um, Jim, I, yeah, from that perspective, I would say it's all relative. Say the is, most absolutely. experienced person who's been in the business for 25 years and has done a thousand transactions, great. The less experienced person has been in the business for six years and done a hundred transactions, they're still experienced. So you didn't tell us this person is inexperienced. It's their third deal ever. So in that case, what Jeb said, you want to make sure they absolutely positively have a mentor. Um, I compare this to the mortgage side. On the mortgage side, it's a little bit easier because you probably have a gut feeling. Is my file an easy file or is my file a hard one? For a realtor, the hard file is generally dictated by the property, by the listing agent. So we don't really know going into it, is that going to be an easy situation for the realtor or a hard one? For the loan side, if you're self-employed and you have a 650 FICO score and you're getting gift funds and we just repaired your credit, we have all these moving parts, you know you need someone with experience. If you have an 800 credit score, you got you know 40% sitting in the bank and you're gonna put a 20% down payment and you have the same job that's a salary for the last 20 years, an inexperienced person probably can't screw that up. So it's it's a little different on the real estate side because would you say that that's accurate, Jeb, that oftentimes the property itself and the, the, determines the complexity of the transaction? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, a, a, again, in, in a competitive market, I think a newer agent, an inexperienced agent is um, is as capable in 80% of the ways as an experienced agent. Where, where, it, where it changes is when the market changes, things are difficult, um, you know, if negotiations are tough. That's where the experience kind of breeds the upper hand, if you will. So it to each his own. It's again, it's a lot of this is personal and you got to go with with what you feel comfortable with, because ultimately that's what's going to bring you comfort in 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 the process. So I, I say stick with that. So what I want to do here, guys, is it is uh, what we've been in here just hour and a half hour and 38 minutes. Well, 12 you, hours, 12 hours. Um, I should just go live until I hit 100,000 subs. <laughs> I like that idea. What, I like what, what if I did? My wife would probably punch me. Um, but anyway, if you haven't done so already, if you're listening on the homebuyer, the educated homebuyer podcast, which at the moment, 24 of you are, there's 120 on the, 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 the main, my main channel. Um, you know, if the 24 of you haven't subscribed, go subscribe to Jeb Smith. It would help me reach those numbers. Um, and if you're on my channel, help me hit a hundred thousand tonight. I would be grateful, especially if you've been here before and you haven't subscribed, it helps me. Um, and it helps the algorithm. And ultimately, again, the goal here is to educate and, um, you know, we're giving you our time and hopefully providing value while we're doing it. So, Josh, one other personal thing here. 
A lot of people ask recently about the sleep apnea test. So I had a sleep apnea test. My wife's like, you're dying while you're sleeping. And of course, I, I said no for the better part of however many years that I denied it. Well, she was partially right. Um, I have mild to almost moderate sleep apnea. Um, I'm at like, I think 15 becomes moderate. Like if you have 15 apneas within whatever the time frame is, I don't even know. I, I probably should know this. Um, then you're moderate. I'm at 12. So I'm, I'm on the high side. Uh, but I do qualify for the, the nice little machine. And, and, and I told my wife, I was like, I should probably order it because if I'm not getting good sleep now and guys, I sleep fantastic. Like I have no problem going to sleep. I get up early in the morning. When I wake up, I get out of bed. There's no like deciding whether I get out of bed and I usually feel pretty good. So if I can improve that, I'm all about it guys. So if you see Jeb, maybe that's why I'm, I'm, um, uh, not as personable, Josh, sometimes is maybe I'm getting bad sleep. Uh, I'm going to, uh, every time I want to say, Hey, Jeb was really being a jerk today. I'm just going to go, he's got apnea. It's okay. You gotta, you gotta give him some slack. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's why. So, Hey, I, if I come in rejuvenated, revived, if you will, guys, just know it was the CPAP. Um, anyway, Moving along, uh, we get questions like this all the time, um, but I'm going to start answering it, Josh, and then I'll throw it your way. Should I lock my interest rate right now or maybe wait until next week or in the month? I would say if you're comfortable with the rate now, you might not like it, okay? Nobody likes the rates right now unless they their last rate was like 20%, right? If you are comfortable with your rate, the payment that's associated with it, lock it. Josh might have a different answer. That's okay. But there's too much volatility in the market at the moment. It, there's, there's, there is, you know, one dummy can come on and say one thing and it, it, the market goes bananas the one way. Then another dummy can come over here and say something entirely different. Market goes bananas in the other way. At the end of the day, lock your rate, move along. And at some point in the future, you're likely going to have an opportunity to refinance. So that's my two cents. Josh? For most people, that is the, the right answer right now because there is so much volatility. If I talk to someone, I, we've gone through this on the show before, I ask someone, you go to Vegas, do you hit the buffet? Do you hit the shopping mall? Or are you just the person that cannot get to the blackjack table fast enough? You're pumping money into the slots at the airport before you even get in the taxi. If you're that person and you have some risk tolerance and you're working with a mortgage professional that can help you gauge risk versus reward right now, you could possibly float. Um, for most people, the right answer is, is to get it locked. I, I meant to look it up. I, I should know this, uh, whether retail sales is tomorrow or, uh, or Friday. But retail sales is the other big one that we have this week that um, the consumer has been spending like crazy. And if they keep spending, that will spook the Fed a little bit and it will spook the market worried that the Fed is spooked. So there are some market movers out there right now that for the majority of people, if you're in the market and you're ready to close in the next 30 days, the answer is just, just step out of the way and get the stress out of your life. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, Willing it gave us an update on the, on the pup says growing like a wildflower. Stella, we all named her here, uh, has sizzlers for days and uh, her personality is taking shape. So I would like to rename the dog. I'm sorry. Um, it should be called Wolf. So Wolf is the name of the dog. You've you've come here, Wolfie. Me. You've branded me as Wolf for the better part of two years on 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 the live. I would like to now transfer that name to the dog. So sorry. Um, I think we need to change the dog's name. Just saying. Um, let's see. Amina gave us a five dollar super chat, uh, super sticker rather. So Mina, thank you very much for that. Thank you for the constant and continued support. It means a lot. Um, Last week was supposed to be a cool sticker, but she told us what it was, but you never went and looked at it. Well, so here's the problem is like, I, I don't think most people was. realize this. So when we're streaming here, we're streaming off of a, a third party platform. So StreamYard is what we use because StreamYard allows us to go to multiple channels at one time, um, which means we're seeing how they bring in the content, right? It's a third party. They eliminate a lot of the fanciness with, with how YouTube views it. So we don't have YouTube streaming at the same time because it's it doesn't make sense. And plus, based those have been here for a while, our internet clearly can't support it um, streaming more than one thing at a time. Even though we're on two G uh, internet, 
So we have to shut everything down. So I don't, we again, don't know what the, the sticker is, but it came with $5. So I just have to imagine it is an amazing sticker and we're very appreciative. She says the sticker is keep it up. Keep it up, my friend. Keep it up. I like it. I mean, you know, words of encouragement. I uh, can never go wrong there. All right. So. Jeff, it's important see. that you know that Love for Puppies thinks her Chewini has sleep apnea. So you and her Chewini have Dude, much your dog probably has sleep apnea as well. Like, let's no. be honest. That thing we, can't we, breathe when it's awake. No. That's Bro, we, we got her nares. Uh, she got a nose job. She got her nares fixed. She can breathe perfectly. Don't believe it. Don't believe it for a minute. She doesn't even snore. Come on. Yeah, right. Unlike you. All right. So here we go. I snore. Um, it's not good. You know, I wish it didn't. I tried to tried to figure it out. Just can't do it. Maybe the nose strip. Maybe I look like Hermosi and I just wear that thing on my nose all the time. Yeah. All right. What's the most points that someone is allowed to buy for a loan if they're getting a credit from a seller? So in this case, they're putting 25% down. They're getting a $20,000 credit from the seller. Um, one lender said, I won't be able to use the entire 20K to buy down my interest rate. So it's important to know your purchase price uh, because that's going to tell us the percentage of that 20K that we're actually talking about here, right? So if it's a $2 million loan, that's just 1%. You could easily do that. Um, if it's a $200,000 loan, then that's that's 10 points. That's a lot of money. Um, is that what we're talking about, Josh? A hundred percent. And and where it comes down to, we've talked about this on the show before. Each lender, their compliance department is going to um, interpret the guidelines around- 395, Josh. So 400,000. So that's five points. Five points. It's going to be very hard. Bonafide discount points are excluded from the points and fees calculation. But I can just say that every wholesale lender that we work with, they all have really conservative interpretations of that. And five points is probably going to be outside the realm. Let's talk about the more important thing here. Should you buy down a rate with five points? You absolutely should not. Um, because the further you get away from par, we talked about this before, one point will likely get you a quarter percent. In the current market, it might get you closer to half percent, let's say 0.375.4. But the further you get away from par, each point doesn't keep getting you that much lower. You get less and less and less bang for your buck. I don't think I would ever look at paying more than two, possibly three points, especially when you're in a situation like this with a $20,000 credit, you can take Two points, $8,000. The other $12,000 should pay all of your closing costs, all of your prepaids. You have no sunk costs into that loan. You have a very good interest rate. But if and when rates drop, you have no sunk costs into that loan and you can go ahead and, and refinance with uh, with impunity and not worrying about sunk costs. But those would be the two things I would look at. Um, the lender is most likely telling you that the way their compliance department looks at it, those are not bona fide discount points, meaning going to just buying the rate down, which this boggles my mind. We're probably talking over everyone's heads, but it's pretty straightforward. My comp is set. We know that's not money going into my pocket. And, and the situation is in 2005, people could say, oh, those are discount points. We're buying your rate down when there's not even any points required to buy that rate down and the lender is getting paid a two point rebate from the lender. So the government wanted to eliminate that stuff. Compliance departments err on the side of caution in how they interpret that. And you most likely will not be able to pay five points for the loan. All right. Good, good, good. Um, Cesar, Cesar says, uh, what's the best product right now to pull equity for an investment property? Really, what are your options for pulling equity out of a property? You're looking at a cash out refinance or a home equity line of credit. So you need to look at the blended rate. That's going to tell you which one is better for you. If you have a 3% interest rate on a $500,000 first and you want to pull out $200,000, doesn't make sense to take that whole thing out to a 7% interest rate. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have 3% rate on a $100,000 first and you want to pull $200,000 out, we look at the blended rate, 7% on all that 300,000 probably makes more sense than 3% on 100,000 and 10% on the remaining 200,000. But blended rate will tell you the story. Um, tolerance for a variable rate on the second, which a HELOC will be, could push you one way or the other. Uh, but those would be your two primary options of accessing equity in a property to purchase another home. All right. Good, good. Uh, Willing has a question here. Um, you ask about the name. No, Wolf is is the only name. It's like Madonna, you know, just Wolf. That's that's it. Uh, but no, uh, more importantly, how far back does do credit reports go? 20 
plus years. They go back forever, right, Josh? I mean, at this point, I don't. Is, there's not a limit, no, right? There, there is. Oh, so, there is. from the date of last activity, a credit card, installment loan, that type of stuff, they can only report for seven years. After seven years, poof, it goes away. Um, judgments, bankruptcies, public records, it's on there for 10 years. So if you had a bankruptcy in 2010, it's gone. A creditor can't pull that credit report and see it anymore. It will disappear. So sort of the follow-up there, she says, what happens if you don't have any credit for one year plus? Would you not have a score? Most likely you would after one year, after two or three years of no activity, there's still going to be some accounts on there. But when there's no activity to rate, this kind of goes back to Jeb where we tell people, 0.1 to 9.9% is the ideal usage for a credit card because that way you're using it. The model can see activity uh, and know, hey, this person isn't using credit excessively. They pay the bill on time, but they are actually using it. So gen generally, if someone had that history, let's say you hadn't used your credit for three years and we didn't have a score, go out and use one of the credit cards and you should have a score fairly quickly. Really shameless plug here, guys. Uh, we recorded an episode this past week uh, on the educated home buyer. In fact, it'll be it, it was this past Tuesday's episode. So if you go on the educated home buyer YouTube channel, or if you listen on Spotify or podcast or podcast Apple, anywhere you listen, it will be this past week's episode. We talk about credit, how to improve your credit to help you buy a home. It's short. It's like thirty minutes, guys. It'll help you improve that score. It talks about how important that score is in the process, and we give you some examples of how it affects rates and why you should focus on that. You know, especially if you're in this time period where things aren't not a lot of inventory. You're not seeing what you want. Use this as an opportunity to improve the things that you can control the controllables to put yourself in a better position. So go check that out if you haven't. In today's episode, we actually go over misconceptions around FHA loans and why it's important to understand this. So next Tuesday, we're going to be talking about that if you are um, in need of something to listen to or watch. So go check that out. Uh, Josh, we've got um, a question here. Uh, from Claudia. Claudia is saying, I will be closing next week. What should I expect besides my key to the house and signing more papers? Any tips? Not, I mean, it depends, right? Depends on where you're located, how your state operates, how your agent operates. But if you haven't done a final walkthrough on that property, chances are you're going to do that walkthrough. You're going to make sure the property's in the condition that, you know, that it was in when you made the offer. If there were repairs that were requested that were agreed upon, you're going to confirm that those repairs have been completed and that you're satisfied with with the work that was done. That's really the only thing that happens towards the end there um, outside of signing the loan documents uh, and, and, and actually getting the keys to the property. But you're going to want to make sure that you get your utilities transferred over, you you know, get all of those things kind of moving in the right direction. You know, if you haven't told your landlord, if you're currently in a rental, now's probably a good time to break the news that you're not going to be there in 30 days. Now that you kind of confirm that you're moving forward with everything. Uh, but outside of that, no, no, no real tips. I, I guess the biggest tip would be to kind of probably relax now. Um, it's not over, but you're kind of in the final stretch. You can you know, maybe enjoy the process a little bit more. Don't go buy furniture. Don't do anything crazy um, unless you're paying cash for it. Uh, but Jeb, the most stressful part about that last week or two is generally the loan. The loan should be done. So hopefully by now you've been told that you're clear to close. Hopefully you already have a closing disclosure. The closing disclosure can change. There can be revisions, but nothing bad for you or changing to the high side for you. So closing disclosure will give you an idea of how much money to have at closing. It will confirm your interest rate, your monthly payment, all that fun stuff. So you need to have that three business days prior to signing your loan docs. So the big thing for me is when your loan docs go out to escrow, we like to send a copy of the note, a copy of the estimated settlement statement from escrow. That's different from the closing disclosure, but it is generally more accurate. The closing disclosure will get adjusted to, to match that, that closing. Um, and then you also want to make sure that you get your money over to escrow as early as, as possible in, in terms of that. So get your money over there and make sure, the big one, Jeb, uh, call, don't email, call and verify the wiring instructions before you send your closing funds because wire theft is a real thing. Good advice. Very, very good advice. Uh, and, and thank you, Claudia. $20. Uh, very kind of you to uh, to do that. So very appreciative, very thankful. Um, 
and uh, I hope your closing goes well. Uh, I and, congr- and congratulations. Yeah, on congratulations. Um, yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Glad. I hope that we were able to contribute to the process. So um, in a meaningful way, in a positive way. Uh, this question came in at the same time and I accidentally clicked on it, but we're going back to it. I'm looking to purchase a duplex with dad. Uh, he would occupy one and rent the other. Would we still qualify for an FHA or do both of us have to live in it? So Josh can, um, they both purchase it together. One be a non-occupying co-borrower and it still qualify under the guidelines as a primary home. Absolutely. Everything else there is just kind of noise around the question. You're using FHA financing to purchase a property. Your one of you is going to live in it, the other is not. So as Jeb correctly pointed out, non-occupying co-borrower, is that acceptable? Yes, it is per FHA guidelines. They will have to count your housing payment against you. So if you own your own home, that mortgage payment has to be counted against you. If you're renting, we're gonna document that rent and count it against you because you're gonna continue to have that shelter cost, whereas his goes away when he moves in. And with only one of you occupying, then we know we have one vacant and you can take 75% of those rents and add it to the qualifying income as well. All right. Good stuff. Another good question here um, from Guzman says, my escrow account went up last year to catch up on a negative balance. Will it go back down this year? So let's talk about why escrow accounts get adjustments, why there's a, a change in that number. Typically what happens is you've been, the escrow account has been collecting money, the impound account, regardless of, I mean, people call it different things, has been collecting money based off your current tax bill and your current homeowner's insurance bill. So what happens is as those numbers adjust, which even here in California, Prop 13 allows your taxes to increase up to 2% per year, um, whereas other states have bigger adjustments. Uh, But homeowner's insurance, a lot of people have noticed a big change in the amount that they're paying for homeowner's insurance. So what happens is when that company bills the escrow company for the the balance the escrow company looks at it or you know the escrow company the 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 lender looks at it and says we don't have enough in here to fund this thing but we'll pay it and therefore we'll make it up in in creating this adjustment in your payments going forward so they're going to make it up but what happens is it's not going to necessarily go back down unless the payments on the insurance and the things that changed go back down unless they were just collecting too little to start with, at which point they needed to make it up and then it'll readjust. So the negative part that you were negative, that should come down back to whatever the new adjustment is, if that makes sense. But um, I wouldn't expect it to go back down to what you were originally paying prior to the negative because something got you in that negative. Yeah. And I can say from... Yeah, 100%. And I can say from personal experience, I have had it come down to on, on mortgages that I've had where they've had to add it. But when they come down, you get the little tiny adjustment. And when they go up, they're generally much bigger. So I wouldn't think that in terms of equal and opposite reaction next year, it's going to go back down. It may come down, but I wouldn't expect it to be very much. And not to lead you down the wrong path, but I've gotten I've gotten checks from escrow companies before when They've recalculated the impound account and realized that they were collecting too much based off what happens. And then you get a check in the mail for, you know, a couple thousand bucks. And you're like, whoa, didn't expect that. So it can go both ways. Um, you know, hopefully you, you get the the that uh, side of it. But just keep in mind. Um, well, that, Jeb, yeah. Jeb let, let me let me give you a fun and interesting story because I've had this happen with two borrowers now. Um <clears throat> We talked about that aggregate adjustment. Well, once a year, they have to do the analysis on your account and say, do we have enough in there? And that's not just say over the next 12 months, do we have enough to pay the taxes and insurance when they come due? It's do we have enough plus the pad that we're allowed to keep in there? Well, in California, we have the fund prop 13. So if you buy a property that the seller had a much lower tax rate, you're going to have a big supplemental. And that can be more a year or two more down the line before that happens. These buyers bought in the Santa Cruz area. The seller was assessed at like 200. They paid about 700 for the property. We just had the lender do the reconciliation, the annual reconciliation and send them $9,000 back and lower their payment by $700 a month even though we had it set correctly. So my borrower was super excited, calls to tell me about it. And I had to explain to them, you're going to get a really big and unhappy adjustment back the other way. So if you want to use the $10,000 for the next year, go ahead and do that. But um, just just always beware and always review what they're sending you out. Because always be hustling. 
yeah, it doesn't it doesn't mean that what they're sending you is is accurate, uh, good or bad. Good stuff. Uh, another five dollar super chat from uh, Elva. Thank you, Elva. Uh, says we are the, her favorite channel. Um, wishes a, a happy Valentine's Day. So happy Valentine's Day to you as well. And then uh, Claudia uh, also mentioned up here. This has helped guide her uh, along the way, and she's very grateful for us. Um, so I like posting this stuff. Uh, it's, you know, this is why we do what we do. It's to help other people and serve. And, you know, hopefully you guys get some value out of that. And yeah, that's what makes it worthwhile guys. So thank you. We've been on an hour. We'll run a little bit over here, Josh, if you're good with it, if you don't have uh, anywhere to be tonight, I, it is Valentine. I don't have a Valentine. I don't have a Valentine. I'm nope. shocked that anyone showed up to listen to us. I do have a Valentine. My lovely wife and dog are at home. You're, I, I guarantee here. your wife's if. Angela, text me right now if you're listening. Watch. I, I yeah. guarantee you I get a text within like two minutes. She's our biggest fan, guys. Find yeah. you that find you that Valentine that's your biggest fan. That's that's all you need. Nikki, you hear that? She's not paying proper attention to your 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 product here. If she yeah. did, I bet you would already have a hundred thousand subs and you would that's have very that. true. You would have you know, people your would prefer playlist. to her over me any day, and that's that's okay. Um, so Josh, we get a lot of questions around rates. Um, I we can answer these, but I prefer if you're okay with it. Um, you know, we've got one asking about rate forecast for 2024. We got one asking, is there a possible decrease in rates? Listen, guys, we covered our forecast for rates um, a couple weeks ago in the the forecast on the Educated Home Buyer channel live. And what I would say is my my thoughts haven't changed. The data is a little more sticky than I thought it would be at the moment, but the forecast has not changed for me. So I would ask you, I would encourage you to go listen to that because we talk about why, not only where we think rates will go, but why we think they'll go there. And again, even though the data is a little bit different, it's, it is my, my perspective is still the same. So that's where I would say. Uh, and Jeb, we actually had, um, we have, we have several regular commenters that they, we have a little back and forth and agree, disagree, but respectfully throw up their thoughts. Um, and someone put up that same question. They said, Hey, in light of the NFP data, in light of the CPI, you changing your forecast. And I go, no, it may be pushed back 30, 45 days, but I think by mid year, all of the things that we talked about in our forecast will be playing out just a little bit more slowly than what we had anticipated. All right, good stuff. Couple more questions here. Um, this is a pretty easy one, Josh. How long before closing is your rate considered locked? Has nothing to do with the closing. It is when you and your loan officer get on the same page and agree, we are going to lock the rate and it is not locked until you receive a loan estimate that at the top of page one says it is locked and it is locked through this date. So never take someone's word for it. Back in the day before we had the new guidelines with loan estimates and closing disclosures, LOs would say, oh yeah, I locked your rate. And they were playing the market, hoping that it would hoping that it would get better. Rates would get worse. Hey, sorry, I can't do that rate. Like, what are you talking about? We locked it a month ago. Now you have to receive that loan estimate that shows it's locked through the date, through the terms. So have that conversation with your loan officer if you're wanting to lock. In terms of when should you do that, Go back to the 20 minutes ago when we answered that question. Most people should probably lock now. If you have a risk tolerance, um, I could make a case for someone with a risk tolerance not locking just yet. I had the worst uh, wholesale rep at World Savings back in the day. And this dummy would, I would call him and I'd be like, dude, where's my approval? Like you told me we were getting it today. He's, oh, it's approved. It's approved. He would tell totally. me things like that. Every day he would say, it. oh, it's approved. So why haven't I gotten the approval? Oh, blah, blah, blah. And then it would be days, days. And then you come to find out, it's not approved. And I'd be like, what? What do you mean it's not approved? You told me it was approved. Well, and then he would go over this. And then we'd be like, hey, lock the rate. It's locked. It's locked. You said locked. Dude, it was never locked. I'm like, you are like, come on. What are we doing here? Like, but anyway, so now it's different. It's not what it was back then, but there was some craziness going on. Um, love for puppies. If selling a current home on an... Uh, executory contract um, so and buying another we some, home. We need some clarification on that. Yeah, um, maybe it's an exclusive contract. Either way, um, if I, if you're selling a home and you're buying another home, I think that's more of the important question. Do lenders count the home sold in the DTI for qualifying purposes? So, if it's not sold, let's let's answer it both ways, Josh. If it's if it's still on the market, has not sold, are you counting it? Um, and if it has sold. 
the the only really the only way around um the the only way to exclude it fanny and freddie have a, a guideline that says if it is under contract and you can document that all contingencies have been removed they will allow you to exclude it so you need to get the the contingency release from your realtor that says there's no appraisal contingency there's no loan contingency there's no inspection contingency everything released and if we document that on a fannie freddie loan you can exclude it other than that um, there's some unique off the wall products out there that are almost akin to a bridge loan where they will exclude a departing residence if it's under contract. But for the most part, you're going to have to count that if the, the sale has not closed. All right. Good, good. So guys, it is an hour and four minutes and uh, we are slow on questions. So we're going to let you guys get with your Valentines. If you don't have a Valentine, go find one, right? There's enough apps out there to find. You can actually find a Valentine tonight if you want to. Um, so, you know, to each his own, um, Josh, appreciate you being here as always, uh, educated home buyers appreciate you being here. If you're not a fan of that channel and you're on Jeb Smith's channel, go check that out. And if you're on the educated home buyer channel and you're not on my channel, uh, do me a favor and check that out as well. Uh, if you want to get in touch with Josh, myself, any lender in the country, uh, you can do so by checking that link that's scrolling the bottom. Again, uh, here to serve you guys, here to provide as much information so that you guys can make informed decisions and become educated home buyers. So we'll be back next week. Uh, until then, adios. Amigos. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, Please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.